This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart Food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. Welcome to the BBC Music Magazine podcast. I'm Oliver Condy, the magazine's editor, and with me in the studio are reviews editor Michael Beek and deputy editor Jeremy Pound. Hello. Hello. Well, it's the time of the April issue this episode, packed with features, news, interviews, 100 reviews, a big festival special. My goodness, there's 174 pages in this issue, so it'll provide a nice thwump onto your doormat this month. Uh, so let's get going with the, uh, with the podcast. Well, it's been another busy month in the classical music world, but there is one story that is quickly dominating um, as we record this podcast. The news at the moment, which is the coronavirus, uh, shutting down venues across up and down Europe, uh, America, um, the uh, Far East, and of course, China. Um, so uh, devastating effects on on uh, the cultural lives of these various countries, musicians, everything. Of course, it's not the most important problem because obviously we, we've got to look after the health of the population. But I wonder what the long-term effects on the cultural life of, of various countries is going to be. Um, so yes, it's, it's very much a changing landscape, isn't it? But um, I think the way things are going, the impact is going to be seemingly quite large over the summer, mm. um, which is a worry when you think how much there is happening over the next few months. As we speak at the moment, um, obviously lots of things have been cancelled in Italy because the country is in shutdown. Mm. Um, we've lost a few events in the Far East particularly, haven't we? China yep. and yep. Hong Kong. America as well. And America. Nothing yet in the UK, but we just have to wait and see. Yeah, Germany has cancelled most of its large cultural events. Ditto Austria. 
ditto Austria. Um, but but you know, one one forgets you know that 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 players in orchestras are freelance. Many of them, I mean, particularly in the UK, maybe maybe in, on the continent they're a little bit more sort of permanent. But uh, certainly in the UK, a lot of musicians are uh, sort of weighing up their options at the moment. Yeah, the knock on is is just quite it's quite it's long, isn't it? And sort of, and yet they say that um, the peak of this virus might actually happen in kind of early summer. Mm. So maybe a lot of the sort of later summer events will remain intact. But of course, by then, the decision to have cancelled would have been made. So you almost might have this situation, this ironic situation where events have been cancelled, and actually, it would have been fine for them to carry on, which would be doubly galling. Mm, absolutely. I went to the um, one of the category finals, the piano category final of young BBC Young Musician over in Cardiff uh, last Sunday. And uh, of course, there's talk of a plan B. You know, what do we do if all these things can't go ahead? You know, do we do we cancel the final? Do we postpone it? Do we what do we do? So I think a lot of people are just sort of carrying on and making sure that all the plans are in place, but having to react at the very last moment. Definitely. But it is terrible for all those people who have worked so hard on these things. I mean, I was meant to go to the Piatigorsky Cello Festival in Los Angeles this coming week weekend and that was three years of work that's for them potentially really now is sort of down the drain and yeah. hopefully they'll be able to reschedule but it's yeah. just you know heartbreaking really yes it really really is so we we well we cross all our fingers and and, and very much hope for the best um but we move on to other news uh, and we are going to be, well, relaunching our podcast soon. Um, so we're going to be doing a new series of Music to My Ears, uh, which is a sort of extension of a brand that's already in the magazine. So we interview three musicians every month and ask them what they're listening to. And we thought that might work rather well in audio form. So we've been busy scuttling about the country, interviewing all sorts of, uh, of marvellous musicians. Yeah, I think it's really exciting. Yeah, have to sit down, have a conversation with with a musician or whoever, and talk about their you know, their, their first loves and music they can't live without, things like that. I think it's a really nice thing to do. So I'm looking forward yeah. to. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to keep it keep it close to my chest who I am talking to, but I'm going up to Birmingham to meet someone next week, and then here in Bristol for the week after that. Yes, and uh, I, I had a rather lovely experience in Llandaff Cathedral recently when I got to play the new organ. Oh, so yeah. not only did I interview my subjects, but I had a little go on the wonderful Nicholson organ, which is actually 10 years old, which is incredible. Oh, and I learnt a uh, fascinating fact, actually, for organ buffs, uh, the first completely new organ in a British cathedral since the organ was installed in the new Coventry Cathedral. Oh, wow, I had no and idea. What was that? 1962. 1962. Thank you, Jeremy. Oh, and were your organ playing will be on the podcast, or is that to happen? Uh, there may well be a little oh. bit in the background. There may well be. Um, possibly not by me. I mean, I don't want to put you off your breakfast. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> anyway, Michael, you've got news of the PRS, haven't you? Yeah, so uh, we recently had International Women's Day and uh, the PRS released a list of 100 women who are changing music. Um, it's PRS standing PRS for? being the Performing Rights Society. Ah, oh, thank you. Um, so it's a list uh, of songwriters and composers mainly songwriters, to be honest, but there are some notable names on there. Evelyn Glennie's on the list, actually, as a composer, which is interesting because she does does compose, which was actually news to me. Um, she does all sorts of bits and bobs for uh, TV, radio, theatre, library music, that sort of stuff. Um, so she's on for that. But it's it's mainly screen composers who are sort of noted on this just because of the, the volume of work that they're sort of, you know, able to churn out through the year. So the likes of uh, Anne Dudley, Debbie Wiseman and Rachel Portman are perhaps to be expected on the list, but also some of the great young uh, upcoming composers such as Anne Nicotin, Carly Perry, and Isabel Waller-Bridge on the list as well. And what exactly does changing music constitute? Um, I think they're just they're just uh, songwriters and composers whose music has been played a heck of a lot in that year. Um, so it, it, they're sort of out there and being heard. So they're sort of waving the flag. 
that could be a wonderful incentive, actually, for more women to actually have the confidence to come into what has traditionally been a very, very male-dominated arena. So, uh, you know, one can, doesn't really think, except for the few that you mentioned, mm. of very many female film composers, all of course. But, of course, the Oscars changed all that recently. Jeremy? Well, I was just going to say about this list, I'm making this is all very well, and I'm delighted to see it. What initiatives are the PRS actually attached to it to actually continue the flow of women in music making or is it just a list per se it's a list that it, it sort of marks the fact that they're celebrating also that they saw a 60 percent uh, year-on-year increase in women joining the organization so i think that's what they're ultimately celebrating is that more and more as ollie was sort of saying uh, women are joining the organization and sort of embracing this as a, as a possible sort of you know career choice or things like that so you know it's all it's all good stuff excellent good Jeremy, you're going to tell us about the Arnold and Alma Rose exhibition over at the Royal Academy, I think. Yes, this is again. This is um, marking um, the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau, um, and it's a obviously any any story relating to that is going to be tragic, and this is no different. Um, Alma and Arnold Rose were a, a daughter and father violinists um, who actually they. It's a very. It's a story full of irony because the two of them escaped um, escaped to Britain in the 19, late 1930s. They had avoided the Nazis, and they were kind of forging their careers in Britain. Um, and he was a very well known, uh, a very well known violinist in Vienna, and one of the Rose Quartet at the time. She also was a violin soloist, very successful. The pair of them, but when they left Vienna to come to Britain, although they were very well known, they had trouble making ends meet. And while Arnold Rosé stayed in England, Alma Rosé went to the Netherlands to forge her career and hoped she would do it, despite the fact that by that stage, this was in 1940s, the Netherlands had already been taken over by the Nazis. Mm. She survived a couple of years forging her career, partly because she was married to a non-Jew, and eventually, though, um, she got rounded up and taken to Auschwitz. Now, in Auschwitz... She was actually favoured by the camp commandant because she was a violinist and she led the orchestra there. Um, but she eventually died there. Um, they said through food poisoning, but it might have been through actually more nefarious reasons. She might have been victim of other inmates, etc., etc. Got sort of jealousy kind mm-hmm. of thing. And the jealousy. idea that, yeah, that, that she was a violinist that was clearly escaping uh, death and uh, you know that was something that was clearly seen as that's right so it's a sort of a twist on the normal mm. tragedy of Auschwitz mm. but still mm. it is a very tragic story anyway this exhibition by the Royal Academy of Music um, is marking their lives um, they actually have a recording of the pair of them playing Bach double concerto together and they're also um, combining this exhibition of artifacts about their life with a series of concerts by Royal Academy of Music um, students um, who will be playing the music for which they were familiar with mm. um, and which the Auschwitz or- Orchestra itself played. And also, um, uh, <clears throat> Raphael Valfish, the cellist, is going to be interviewing or chatting to his mum, Anita Lasker-Valfish, who played with Alma Rose in the Auschwitz Orchestra, which will be an extremely moving event, I should imagine. Yeah, definitely. Yes, it definitely will be. And that's uh, that exhibition is actually starting uh, now. And this has started already, but it will be going on right until the end of May, so there's plenty of right. opportunity to go and see go it. Go and see it, absolutely. Great. Uh, well, more news in the April issue of the magazine. Uh, gosh, lots more. And um, let's, well, talking of which, let, let's talk about uh, this month's issue. This month's magazine. 
Before we launch into the April issue, let's have a quick, uh, just a quick plug. So don't forget our website at classical-music.com where you can read all about the latest music happenings, reviews, good deal more. Plus we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and we have an iPad edition available on the App Store. And if you want to subscribe to our print edition, we have a special discount for all you wonderful podcast listeners. You can now get 30% off every six issues, which takes the cost down to just £25.15 of your pen. And you can claim the offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash music podcast. So features, Jeremy, what have we got? Back to you. I'm going to begin this with a little question. At what age did you go to your first classical music concert, roughly, can you remember? Oh, I think it was probably about eight or something like that. Yes, I think I was probably nine or ten. With your parents in both instances, I should imagine? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of people who've never done that. They're now in their sort of 30s, 40s, 50s and have never been to a classical music concert. I kind of envy them in many ways, actually, because there's <laughs> such a world out there for them to explore. And of course, there's a great age to explore it now, exactly, being more receptive. You're, exactly, you're going to appreciate it. And this is what our writer, Ian Taylor, recently did, because he took part in the Southbank Encounters um, initiative. And this is where first-time concert goers are invited to come along and they're actually hosted by a leading musician who will show them the concert hall, tell them what the concert is all about, explain the music, and then they sit down together and they listen to a concert. In this instance, Ian was with the baritone Roderick Williams. They had a wonderful concert of Rachmaninoff's Second Piano Concerto, played by Ivana Gavrich and Holst's Planet, and that was all played by the Just the one planet. Just the whole planet. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Mercury, that's your lot. Off you go. <laughs> no, the whole whole of the planets played by the Philomonia. I know they hadn't discovered them all by then, but, you know, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> anyway, um, Ian describes what it was like going to his first ever concert um, and um, expl- kind of explains his reactions to the music. He was kind of semi-moved by the rap man and off but never really got into it but then he found he was completely transfixed kind of by the planet me actually the puzzles me about the rap man and off yeah. i i when i heard, first heard that piece of music i must have been about 10 or 11 and i just completely fell in love with it and i wore out the cassette tape i mean i i just remember just rewinding and playing and playing and playing and it was rhapsody on the theme of paganini on the other side of the cassette, and, and and so that kind of, I wonder why that didn't speak to him as much. And it's strange because whenever I, when I first saw my first ever piano concerto, which in this instance was the Tchaikovsky piano concerto, mm. I was just staggered by the virtuosity of the player as well. You've got that visual element, mm. which really transported me. Yeah. Interesting what you bring to it, because obviously I, the first time I heard that uh, Rachmaninoff was in Brief Encounter. So of course, as soon as I was listening to it as music on its own, I was immediately thinking of the story of the film, and that made me react emotionally to the music. Mm. So it's what, I mean, the thing what is, you bring to it. As well. Yeah, I mean, I think about the Holst though, that it's packed full of so many great melodies. Mm. But the Ratmaninoff though is has got some blinders, and I'm, mm. I'm I'm I guess also with the Holst, you've got the visceral excitement of the opening, the Mars, the that sort of real impact, and of course the wordless chorus at the end as it sort of fades like Voyager into the beyond the end of the solar system is wonderful. But just to explain how this system works, is the idea with this um, South Bank Encounter scheme is that once you've been taken along by your famous musician, mm. then you are entitled to bring someone else along and they get a free ticket and it's supposed to grow exponentially like that because they mm. will then bring someone else along, etc., etc., etc. Interesting idea. It's a very good idea. And Ian, Ian clearly loved it, yeah. which is um, nice to and see. And is he going to invite somebody along? He is, yes. He he's is. going to go to lots more concerts. Oh, this we is hope. good. This is yeah, good. Well worth the investment. Exactly. Well worth the investment. Right, before I talk about my story... Uh, Let's have a brief music clip.
Well, that was Canadian pianist Angela Hewitt playing the final movement of Bach's first partita. And it's a brand new recording. In fact, it's the second time she's recorded the partitas. And she talks all about uh, recording them and coming to the end of her huge Bach tour, her Bach Odyssey uh, in this month's magazine. And also a very unfortunate circumstance, which I don't think we'll entirely talk about in this podcast, because I think you should go and read the article. But, um, you know, we've we've, we've titled the feature Agony and Ecstasy, and that gives you an idea of the sort of the the yin and the yang, the ups and the downs of being a concert pianist. Um, But she is an incredible, incredible artist. I mean, that very brief clip we played just then, I mean, she's so crisp and so... Uh, beautifully articulated, wonderful artist. Absolutely. I I interviewed Angela Hewitt a long time ago, um, and I think this must have been about 2000, so 20 years ago, um, when she had just released a recording of the 48, the Well-Tempered Clavier, mm-hmm. which she has since re-recorded, hasn't she? Mm. So she's kind of coming back to stuff which she's yeah. she's previously recorded. Now, I'm, I absolutely adore that first recording of hers. I've yet to hear the second one. So, mm. But it shows gives you kind of an... In, kind of insight into the mind of these amazing musicians that they've recorded something so perfectly to my ears or to a lot of people's ears and yet they still want to do it again and have well, a, how many another times, take. Well, how many times has Yo-Yo Ma recorded the cello suites? Oh, exactly. At least six times, I think. Something like that, <laughs> yeah. Um, but there is so much more to, to, to grasp within those pieces every time you play them, let alone every time you record them. I saw Angela Hewitt perform books one and two of the World Temper Claviot St. George's. Mm-hmm. I went all off by heart, of course. Um, staggering, staggering. Um, and, and, and I can imagine that every time she sat down and, and played that, um, new things would spring out. Exactly. I spoke to her for the, because it was recording of the month a couple of months ago. So I spoke to her about, about re-recording them. And she just said, yes, 20 years of experience and just rediscovery and uh, improved technology, different piano, that sort of thing. It just all, all has an impact and an effect mm. on, on how mm. she perceives it and, and plays. Absolutely. So do seek out this wonderful feature by Claire Jackson. Um, she interviewed her in uh, uh, St. Uh, James's Piccadilly. Um, got some wonderful photographs. Just going back to her former story, which we've been talking about, I really hope that coronavirus virus doesn't put an end to her odyssey before she's reached final destination oh gosh yes 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 it finishes in june doesn't it at wigmore hall so oh gosh you might have to postpone the end of it and sort of do it as a coda it'd be like odyssey him odysseus himself never getting back to penelope wouldn't it dear dear perish the thought perish the thought um but before we move on to michael's uh story um it would be nice to just quickly mention the festivals um it's something we do every year and in the april issue and it's just a wonderful guide to what's going on near you both uk and europe um in america the far east um well, again, coronavirus could uh, could threaten some of these, but I do hope that uh, the landscape is as fruitful and as wonderful as ever, because it's such it can be such a sort of an oasis of culture. The, the summer, such a wonderful chance to go and explore music in areas that no, don't normally get a huge amount of uh, of music. So, um, so do do seek out the April issue, absolutely. Um, Michael, go on. Are we going to hear a clip first? We absolutely are. Here it is.
So there we are. That was uh, uh, Scarlatti's Sonata KK427 in G major. That was performed by Federico Colli. Uh, and he's the artist on our recording of the month in the April issue. Uh, this is his second volume of Scarlatti keyboard sonatas or sonatas. And uh, this is released once again on the Chandos label. Um, I was just kind of bowled over by this disc. Um, I know the reviewer certainly was, uh, hence why it's recording of the month. And I just couldn't get over how beautiful it was. I don't know why I had in my mind that Scarlatti might just be a little bit sort of, I don't know, fusty and twirly-whirly, but actually, it's <laughs> which would have just put me off. But it was absolutely beautiful. And um, when I spoke to Federico, he sort of said, he, he while he doesn't think Scarlatti was ahead of his time, he thinks he's for all time. So actually, his music remains relevant. And I think he's absolutely right. Yeah, there's so much daring in the play. Well, in the playing, mm-hmm. of course, but in the writing particularly. Yeah, yeah. There's so much demand on the player. Uh, so many leaps and cross hands and uh, passages that are very, very rapid. Um, the passage work is incredible. I mean, it's really, really difficult stuff. Mm. It requires extreme dexterity. Uh, and and this is just such a delightful recording. It and is. He pairs up the sonatas, doesn't he? I was going to say. beautifully programmed. It's not just sort of a, a lump of his favourites. No, favorites. no, definitely not. There's... So um, the, the sonatas are meant to be paired, but we're never quite sure what the pairings are meant to be. So Federico has very much gone his own way and, and paired them up in, in ways that he sees fit, um, usually to do with um, sort of opposites and, you know, dark and light and major and minor, those sorts of things. Um, yeah, opposites attract definitely, and, and it works beautifully here. And is there plenty of humour in there as well? Kind of uh, I would say just lots of colour. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Well, you know, only heard it in that one, didn't yep. you? I mean, it's uh, sparklingly played, yeah. sparklingly recorded as well. I mean, Shandos are on a real sort of mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, high at the moment. I mean, you look at those um, John Wilson recordings, the French one, the Corn Gold. Um, you know, they, they, they've got some fantastic engineers, and I think with a player like that, you need the clarity of sound. Um, wonderful piano, wonderful pianist, wonderful composer. Everything sort of comes together. Yeah, terrific, terrific. wonderful. Well, this is where we share our, the recordings that we've uh, recently discovered. Uh, you can get stuck in as well. Send us your discoveries and you could appear on our Music to My Ears uh, page. So do email us at music at classical-music.com uh, and tell us what you've been listening to, old recordings, new recordings, also any concerts. It'd be lovely to hear from you. So uh, we're going to kick off with the first listen uh, with Michael's suggestion. Well, back to you. Uh, what have you discovered recently? So I can't stop listening to this. It's really charming. It's on Orchid Classics. It's called Not Now, Bernard and Other Stories. Now, I don't know if you remember, but Not Now, Bernard was a really brilliant children's book, which I read a lot as a kid, uh, about a monster who eats a small boy. And then uh, his parents basically don't realise that the son is actually missing and the monster moves into the house. Very, and you know, I've not read it. I've never read it. Either. It's largely a picture book, you know, but it, it's absolutely brilliant. And so... Um, who wrote it, do you know? Uh, David McKee. Oh. So it's a really great story. Uh, and it's been set to music, music by Bernard Hughes, uh, alongside other uh, stories uh, with music by Bernard Hughes and some music by uh, Judith Weir as well. But we're going to hear uh, from part one of uh, Not Now Bernard by uh, the composer Bernard Hughes with narration by Alexander Armstrong. There's all sorts of Bernards going on. Very many Bernards. Bernard was a boy. Just an ordinary boy. He lived with his mother and his father.
they always seemed very busy. There we are. That was a, a clip from Not Now, Bernard, uh, part one of that by composer Bernard Hughes. Uh, absolutely delightful. Alexander Armstrong there narrating. Wonderful. And that's on Orchid, Orchid Classics. Orchid Classics. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I've got a, a recording played by Brooklyn Ryder, the quarter string quartet. I oh, always nice. think they do wonderful mm-hmm. uh, projects. They did one recently with Martin Hayes, the uh, uh, the folk fiddler. Yeah. Um, you know, absolutely wonderful uh, playing, you know, folk and classical sort of. They, they've just got it. They've mm-hmm. just got this this idea of working cross in a cross-genre fashion. Yeah. Um, this time they've commissioned uh, some composers to respond to Beethoven. String Quartet 132, uh, the central movement of which um, is a song of thanksgiving from a convalescent to the deity in the Lydian mode. So this is Beethoven suffering from bowel uh, complaints, sort of 1825, a sort of bowel infection, not very nice. I mean, could be cured now, but back then, probably the sort of fatal, really. Um, So as he was convalescing, he writes this absolutely beautiful, I mean, one of his most beautiful uh, creations, um, which is basically a hymn. And because it's modal, it takes on this extra sort of spiritual quality. I mean, Beethoven wasn't spiritual, but I think this is probably the closest that we get to a liturgical work by Beethoven, a sort of offering up to a deity. So what uh, Brooklyn Rider have done is they've interspersed the movements of the quartet, with new works by various composers, one of which is Caroline Shaw. Uh, And I'm going to play you a little bit from her work, Schisma, uh, which was uh, commissioned by them. And uh, it's uh, Caroline Shaw sort of reacting to a passage from the book of Exodus. Um, And there's a line in it which reads, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. So Caroline Shaw sort of sees this as a a sign of sort of refuge, as a sign of sort of um, being looked after. Uh, And... Well, here it is. It's, it's very beautiful. It's sort of very quite quite sort of mysterious. Mm-hmm. It's sort of modal in its own way, I think. Um, but Caroline Shaw sort of sees the, the Beethoven as a sort of um, a warm homecoming, a place of hope and shelter and comfort, she writes in her programme notes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's her response to it. It's a beautiful um, album with works by uh, Rena Esmail, Gabriela Lena Frank, uh, Du Yan, uh, Matana Roberts and of course the Beethoven and that's on ICR Records Ooh, uh, and that's Brooklyn Rider right. Jeremy Right, I'm going to talk about a composer who I knew very little about I knew I kind of knew his name Nikolai Trepnin who, um, there's actually two Trepnins out there which I also hadn't realised that his son was also a very fine composer Nikolai was an exact contemporary of Rachmaninoff born in 1873 um, now on this disc, which is performed by the Bamberg Symphony Orchestra under Lukas Borovic, they perform two works by him, La Princesse Lointaine, which is his opus four, and Narcisse et Echo, mm-hmm. 
What's extraordinary about this disc is it shows you just how much he developed as a composer in a rapidly short space of time. The first work, La Princesse of Wanten, is only eight minutes long, but it sounds just like Tchaikovsky. You can hear the sort of Tchaikovskyan influence. But the second work, you could almost mistake it for Ravel or Debussy. It's these beautiful sound worlds. It's a ballet. And it's all about, it's Nazis, Echo, and it's all about the Ovidian characters, Book three of Ovid's Metamorphoses, I seem to remember. Yes, yes, um, I know it well. You know it well? Excellent. Studied it for Latin A level. Oh, yes. No, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> you know it anyway. <laughs> it's all about the story of how um, Narcissus um, hears Echo's voices initially transfit, but then he's so in love with himself and Echo feels rejected. It's all that story. And it's all, it's all about woodlands and beautiful scenery. And you can hear this through this ballet. And it's absolutely gorgeous stuff. I was taken aback. I knew nothing about Cherepnin. Um, and I really, really loved it. And here is a passage where um, uh, Narcissus first finds find himself a little bit transfixed by Echo. So there you go. And there's a lot of that sort of lush orchestral writing. If you kind of want something which is quite Ravelian but not Ravel himself. Is this post-Ravel? Right. It was um, It was from 1911, Narcisse Echo, and actually it was included in the um, Ballet Russe season. So there are sort of, that's where the sort of probably the French influence comes. So he would have been aware of what was going on in France at the time. And likewise, the French French and Russian worlds intermingled, didn't they? So. They did, they did. And, 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 and English as well. I mean, you know, don't forget... Um, Elgar was was looking French woods and, and and also really Russian woods as well. So there was a whole sort of Vaughan Williams studies with Ravel as well. Exactly. Et cetera, there you et go. So it all came together. Yeah. yeah. Well, we should hear more of Tretnin, Actually, I love CPO actually for their their real uh, uh, drive to uncover these unknown composers. And they're always really very well recorded as well. They're really well performed and recorded their discs. Yeah. 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 So that brings us to the end of this month's podcast. Um, our jingles, each one inspired, in case you didn't guess, by a different English choral composer, uh, were written by Dr. Christopher Maxim. And our podcast is produced here in Bristol by Ben Newat and Jack Bateman. So it's goodbye from me. Goodbye, Jeremy and Michael. Cheerio. Goodbye. And there'll be another group of the BBC Music Magazine team to chat about the May issue next time. So until then, goodbye. The BBC Music Magazine Podcast.